Hey guys, Woody here. I, I don't want you to get the idea that uh, Rolling for Change is ever going to be this consistent model of podcasting. I, I try to strike when the iron is hot in terms of, of motivation, in terms of inspiration, in terms of story. But uh, today, I, I've, got, uh, I've got a corker for you. Uh, we get to talk to Game to Grow and uh, learn more about the, the process of moving from wheelhouse workshop to game to grow and talking about therapeutic role-playing, which I, I'm just so excited for. This is just such a great model for us as therapists, for us as facilitators who want to help children, who want to help people build skills, develop emotional processing tools, all these amazing things that can happen uh, through the guise of games. So what's happening here and that you're getting you know like three four episodes in a row for four weeks that that's pretty amazing right for rolling for change what's happening is that we're kind of in a creative spurt and uh i'm excited for it and i'm excited for you to listen to this podcast this particular podcast just because we get to talk to adam and adam of game to grow if you want to turn back time just a little and learn more about uh, adam and adam uh and what they do with therapeutic role-playing games. You can also listen to our episode, How to Be a Therapeutic Role-Playing Game Master. And that one came on November 10th, 2016. That was our fourth episode. And here we are at number 32. So that's really exciting. And it's exciting to see their growth. And you're going to have a good time. So uh, check out our our podcast here. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Here we go. Welcome to Rolling for Change, a podcast about the therapeutic nature of games, the educational nature of games, a number of things that I could say here. But uh, today we have special guests. We have Adam Davis and Adam Johns from Game to Grow. And when last we left our intrepid adventurers, it was November 2016. That's a long time ago, guys. That was a long time ago. <laughs> Seems like only yesterday. I feel my. I feel like I might have grown several beards since then. Um <laughs> I like, it's Welcome, just beards guys. on top of beards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> several, it's just a, several layers. It's all of it, it's beards all the way down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, welcome, guys. I'm very excited to be talking to you today. I, I'm really excited about your your growth and your your new direction, and uh, I'm hoping we can get to talk about all these different things. Um, but just once again, thanks so much for coming back and talking to us about the work you do. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for, for so having much. us, Woody. Yeah, thanks for having us on. So when we last talked, you guys were Wheelhouse Workshop, and now you're game to grow. And I imagine I've missed a lot of news edits, a lot of Twitter <laughs> feeds, and a lot of uh, different things along the way. But for the listener who may be just going from one to the other, what brought us from Wheelhouse Workshop to game to grow? So we ran Wheelhouse Workshop from 2013 to 2017. Um, and Wheelhouse Workshop was fantastic. We, we ran three groups a week. Adam and I ran everything Wheelhouse Workshop did. Um, and we got to a point in, in 2016, actually, where we wanted to expand farther than Adam and I could do alone. And we really wanted to, to take what we were doing with, with role-playing games played intentionally to a bigger audience with a wider scope of challenges. So we transitioned into the nonprofit Game to Grow. Um, it took from 2016 to 2017 to actually get all the paperwork turned in um, and wait to hear back from the IRS, et cetera, et cetera. So we finally got our 501c3 status in 2017. And so we have been uh, Game to Grow since then. Um, since 2016, when we had those three groups, uh, we now have hired four facilitators and we run seven weekly groups serving almost 50 kids a week in the greater Seattle area from ages uh, 9 to 25. That's amazing. Yeah. It's You're been, growing. It's, it's been quite a quite a growth and expansion. It feels really, really slow, but it, I guess it's not actually that slow. <laughs> Well, to somebody who listened to your last podcast, it's pretty quick. Just the other day I was listening. And so here we are now, Game to Grow. And was there, I mean, Game to Grow, is a, it sounds like an obvious choice for a, a title for your new business, but is there a reason that you chose Game to Grow? Is there something 
that There's stands a, a, out there? A couple of reasons, actually, Woody. So um, we I loved the name Wheelhouse Workshop. I will go to my grave still loving the name Wheelhouse Workshop. <laughs> but a lot of people were said, well, I don't get it. Why Wheelhouse Workshop? You guys, you guys play D&D and run social skills groups. And we sort of had to unpack what a wheelhouse is and so on and so forth. And uh, the, the impetus for Game to Grow actually happened when I was uh, doing some merchandising for Wheelhouse Workshop. And I was... Um, trying to get stickers, promotional stickers to have to hand out at a con. And Wheelhouse Workshop was just so many letters to fit on a sticker. And so I said, oh, man, I need a, I need, a, I need something that's catchier that can fit on maybe a smaller sticker. Oh, man, maybe Game to Grow. That's Wait, Game to Grow, that's perfect. So I, I registered the website like in 2015 because um, I thought it was a good name. And it just so happened that when we were ready to, to transition to a nonprofit, I already had the, the – Website and I already had the Twitter handle, so it worked out pretty well to just transition into Game to Grow as the title. One of the biggest challenges, like Adam said, with Wheelhouse Workshop was just that it wasn't obvious what it was right off the bat, and especially in really considering trying to be a nonprofit, um, one of the goals for that is is that people not only know who you are, but know what you do. And it's one of the biggest challenges of any nonprofit is to tell people what they do, and especially doubly so if you have a nonprofit that does something that's sort of unique, um, like what we do. So being able to have a name um, that's a little more descriptive uh, and that people can maybe make some assumptions if all they had was the name, they could maybe make some assumptions about what it's about. Um, That was a big impetus to trying to take those next steps. It really does speak to it. Game to grow. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. It, it's just a natural. We do get a lot of people saying games to grow. <laughs> so they had to buy and I was thinking G and G as opposed yeah. to D and D. G and G. Oh God, that's game that's and good. Grow. I've never, I've never <laughs> even thought of that. Oh, we, should, we can make a, we can make another sticker with that. <laughs> Got these sticker ideas. It's perfect. Uh, okay, so. Um, <laughs> You guys were using D and D prior to this, using D and D in a in a almost like therapeutic setting to to help kids to build social skills, to help kids to kind of face the challenges that they face on a regular basis. And now you've stepped out beyond that to make your own game system, which is called Critical Core. What was the what were the fallings? I, I won't say fallings. What were the limits of D and D that didn't allow you to do the things you wanted to do in Critical Core now? This opens a new door for you, it seems like. Oh, that's actually a great question. So in all of our groups right now, we're playing uh, 5th edition D&D. And okay. we found when we originally started Wheelhouse Workshop, we were actually playing 3.5. In fact, I think it was before 5th edition came out. Um, and um, in transitioning to 5th edition, we found it was very versatile. It was very um, workable. 5th edition has really streamlined a lot of rules from previous editions. And mm-hmm. um, more than anything, there's lots of great absolutely wonderful RPGs out there, but Dungeons & Dragons has recognizability, even outside of a market of people who play the games regularly or or who are familiar with role-playing games. So one of the things that we found is being able to talk with parents and say, hey, come, come to our Dungeons & Dragons group. They know what a Dungeons & Dragons is, even if they mm-hmm. don't know how to play it or, <laughs> or um, what it really looks like, they know the name. Um, so that, that has helped a lot. But as we've done this over the years, especially taught a lot of new people how to play, we've realized that we really need to streamline the process on teaching someone new or someone younger, um, someone who's 8 or 10, how to play the game and how to step into the game. And we've gotten very good at doing that within our groups. But one of the goals of Critical Core was to be able to hand a kit to somebody and say, great, now go play some tabletop RPGs when they've never played before. And that's hard. Tabletop RPGs have still really built on the, the what's the term you use, older cousin model? Um, where basically, like, um, your older cousin introduces you to the game and teaches you how to play, and then you now know how to play the game so you can go do something else. Basically, you need somebody who knows how to play an RPG to teach you how to play an RPG. Um, and that's a very big limiting factor to helping people really see the magic that RPG can bring. So one of the things that we started to realize was let's take out, let's basically do something similar to 5th edition. We'll, we'll use the SRD, we'll use the, the open license parts of 5th edition, but strip out a lot of the rules, a lot of the pieces that um, make it a little more complicated and a little harder to get to and get to the core of it, which is really about 
cooperative and collaborative storytelling. So how can we do that with as few rules as possible, but still make it a good stepping stone into getting into more complex systems? And so that's where Critical Core comes in. It This gives you a chance to kind of rework things towards the destination you want, which is to tell these good stories and to help kids tell these good stories. Exactly. Um, are you're still using the same RPG system then, like the, all the roles and things of that nature? You're still using the, what's the, I guess, the skeleton of D&D for this? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it is a um, almost almost a um, D&D 5th edition light. Um, and obviously, we can't say that in promotional materials because it's based <laughs> on 5th edition rules, but those are the SRD rules, and there's, there's sort of a limit to what you can say about that. Um, but it is really a stepping stone. Um, it has uh, some similarities pulled from the from the SRD. It has um, you know rolling d20s and adding bonuses. It has the the classic um, six attributes, starting stats. Um, but we've taken out a lot of pieces to make the game a little bit more approachable and a little bit easier to understand. Not just for the player, but for a brand new facilitator who's jumping in and saying, "I know these games can be good. I know they have power to to improve people's lives, but I have no idea how to get started with them." Um, and that's the story we hear a lot. So Adam and I have done uh, trainings around the country, and we've done consultations around the world um, to a lot of people who are really excited about doing the kind of work that we do with Game to Grow. Um, but we do, we are actually the keynote speakers at the Washington Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, and we gave a presentation to an auditorium full of therapists about the work we do using role playing games. And there was so much excitement from the audience as far as doing this kind of work, but none of them had ever played a role playing game before. So the barrier to entry is high to go from never playing a role playing game to playing a role playing game to playing a role playing game well to playing a role playing game well with a sensitive population to then doing so to get positive outcomes. There's just so many hoops to jump through. So one of our goals for Critical Core is to take out some of those hoops so that the barrier to entries can be, barriers to entry can be reduced for both the players and these facilitators so that they can use their therapy training or their education training and then translate that into the, the game as they will. And so we've put our best practices for facilitation and alignment towards therapeutic outcomes in there but there's a lot of benefit that any new facilitator can take away from Critical Core without necessarily needing to be doing exactly what we're doing for our target demographic and our population like we do here in Seattle. I think it's fair to say as someone looking, uh, you know, I, I think I grew up on role-playing games, but I didn't play a lot of them. And the way we played was very much not the way you're supposed to play role-playing games. Um, but it, it did what it was supposed to do. You know, we told a story and we, we had a good time together. Um, but I think looking at it from the outside perspective of someone who has, hasn't seen these RPGs before, and it's kind of daunting. So if you, you, you've got your background in therapy, you're ready to go, but there are 10, 20, 30, 40 books <laughs> to read about D&D to sort of figure out how to do D&D. So the idea of streamlining and making it easier for the facilitator, I think is fantastic, you know, giving that stepping stone. I think oral transmission, you're right, that, that, that older cousin theory, oral transmission seems to be the best way for someone to learn some of these things. In fact, sometimes I'll have to go to to YouTube to try to, to try to figure out how to run any particular game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this critical core idea is not only is it geared towards your particular population, but it's also geared towards making it easier for the therapist to come in and start if they don't have a previous sort of familiarity. And that's fantastic because I don't think anybody else, we may be talking about this as therapists, but nobody else is saying, I'm going to put together a guidebook on how to do this. And this is really supposed to be that, that starting place, um, a chance to, to get, get your feet wet, I guess, is your toes wet, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the ideas of it. And I think a lot of therapists, given just a few starting tools, will realize the power of it and realize the, the potential and start really diving into, okay, how can I do even more with this? So you guys have some very specific skills. I know that... Uh, one of you has a drama background, and of course, most of us coming into therapy, unless we had you know some specific drama therapy kind of stuff in our history, we don't have that. How much does that play a role? How much does the therapist sort of have to put themselves on the line as the game master to try to make this work? 
that's actually a big part of how our therapeutic model works. It's really built on relationships and built on sort of the, the social connection between both the game master and the participants and the participants and each other. So there's a lot to be said for the, the sort of regulating power of affect and how, the, the, how much the facilitator or the game master can control their affect and use that affect to raise the stakes and lower the stakes and um, set the tone for both the, the safety of the therapeutic group but also the, the drama of the game is really a, a particular uh, skill set that's, that's important towards the model. You know, I was listening to your older podcast earlier today, actually, and I was thinking... You know, as a as a therapist, there's sort of an intentionality that I go in with sometimes, and then sometimes I go into a flow state. And because I'm not in, you know, because I'm not doing what you guys are doing, uh, I can't really imagine whether or not this takes place. You know, I heard you talking about how you might have to switch something on the fly in order to kind of meet the client where they're at, which is what we're always trying to do as therapists. We're always trying to meet the client where they're at. We're always trying to meet people at a space that's safe for them. Um, but I, I was wondering how much, what, what's the level of spontaneity and what's the level of I've prepared for every contingency kind of thing? Um, we, uh, we prepare for everything and then... Uh, Are prepared to throw it out yep. the window. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we definitely anticipate needing to change everything. That's been actually a big, a big part of, of what, as we've trained uh, our new facilitators, is we, we definitely want them to be... Uh, to feel equipped to plan and to plan well for the specific needs and challenges and outcomes we want from our participants and then be completely prepared for them to throw that out. Um, there's lots of times that, that you know, anybody, uh, but our kids will show up having had a bad day at school and that will change the way that they uh, interact with the group and then thus what they need. Uh, so you might have planned to really work on specific degree of self-advocacy, um, a specific skill with somebody who's working on that, but they had a bad day at school, they were bullied, and what they need to Today is a silly NPC, a positive, rewarding social experience to know that their presence matters and that they have a, a group of peers that care about them. So we, we might have to introduce a totally different plot hook, plot element, whatever it is, because that, that group needs something different that day. And so uh, the, the sort of attunement piece of our facilitators is really important to be able to uh, to know how, how much attention to pay to the planning versus how much to sort of... Uh, key in with what the group really needs and then shift accordingly. Yeah, when when the, you're really using RPGs as a therapeutic intervention, just like with therapy, you have to be able to jump in and make a sudden adjustment or make a sudden um, change based on the information that you have coming in. Um, in a, a game a few months ago, we had a player who came into the session and uh, I had a bunch of stuff planned for the day and some challenging things to start diving in for with story. And uh, we found out during the check-in that their friend had just committed suicide. And um, it was a, a, a big reveal, and it was not something that we were necessarily prepared to process as a group. But we checked in with that player and said, well, what do you need today? What can we do to help you help support you in that? Um, and what they needed was just to have some escape and to feel powerful in a place where they felt powerless. And so what we did was rather than whatever whatever stuff I had planned, I threw it all out the window and we had a combat where they had a chance to to really wreck some monsters. And that's what that player needed in that moment. Um, and as a as a facilitator and especially a therapeutic facilitator, um, part of my job there was to to kind of assess for what the player needed and for what the the group needed to be able to do to help help support that player. And, and making that adjustment was is a necessary piece. And it sounds like there's almost like you're doing this check-in, which I, I think is fantastic, and I, I want to get into kind of what the check-in's like. But it sounds like you're trying to kind of contend with the whatever the group dynamic is. So hopefully you're hitting, hopefully everybody's on kind of somewhat the same page or something. Because you, I, I wouldn't think, I, I don't know, it depends on your players, but I wouldn't think you could just gear it towards one player. So you have to be very multifaceted and able to switch on a dime where you need to in order to kind of include everybody in that process. That's true. Although once the group develops and they have the sort of social bonds between them, there's a lot of generosity that a lot of our players will have when we do need to spotlight or, or highlight or accent a particular character or a particular player. Um, there's a, a really amazing amount of uh, 
social connectedness that comes from playing a game like Critical Core, Dungeons and Dragons, you name it. Um, I had a group um, just last week where um, one of my players, before the game started, they uh, they sort of tapped. They had a, a glass of water from the water fountain outside. They tapped on it and they stood up and they said, "I would like to make an announcement. I am graduating from high school." And I will be starting the next chapter of my life. And I wanted to let all of you know because you are like my second family. Wow. And wow. And that's that's the level of of um, group cohesion that we can see from having a, an adventuring party that's stuck together and been through thick and thin together. And then the players get to feel that reciprocal. Uh, connectedness because of the players and the next session that another player said, you guys are like my family too. I like that you said that. <laughs> um, and these are socially isolated kids who sometimes struggle making friends and building connections. And so there's something really sort of magical around the social connectedness that happens. So when, when a player is going through a hard day or you know, needs that little bit of extra attention. There's a lot of support that comes from peers that, you know, we as the game masters, facilitators, we can help create some of the structure that generates that that peer network. Um, but a lot of the, the peer modeling and peer support is really a, a huge part of the process as well. Do you ever, as therapists, get kind of stuck in it? Like you, something happens in the session that just it, you're not prepared for it and do you have those moments? I, mean, I guess I'm trying to normalize it a little bit because I know that this happens to me in therapeutic sessions. You know, I was told by one teacher that the thing about therapy is you have to learn how to be with uncertainty. And I'm wondering if that comes to you guys because you sound like you're ready for all contingencies. <laughs> well, that's, I'm glad it sounds so. <laughs> we are, I think we're ready to be unprepared. I think there's there's certain a certain degree of just comfort about I know that I can't be prepared for everything, so part of my planning is leaving some some cracks. Um, as I, I think it's a Leonard Cohen song, he says, um, the, the cracks are where the light gets in. And I think that's an important part of, of how we do it, is we can't be prepared for everything. And it's in those moments, those sort of spontane spontaneous moments where the magic of, of the game and of, of you know our social interactions and our the, the brilliance of the human experience really come from are those sort of unplanned moments. And I think that's the thing that we can, as the facilitators, model that for them too. Something might catch us off guard. And then we as the facilitators, now we are also players, fellow players, and thus we can sort of peer model as well um, and share with them our human experience of being unprepared or, gosh, I'm the game master. I need to think of something that's interesting and fun for us to, to do right now. And how, how do you guys feel about this? And then the group can can also provide that social support back to the game master who might be un, un, unprepared for what kind of thing they might want to do. A lot of this is sort of roots in drama therapy um, and in experiential sort of perspectives in therapy where the game masters, uh, the therapists, I guess, um, uh, nature of being uh, giving and kind but also genuine to the players is a very important part of the model. Um, and so there may be times where the the um, players bring in something that I'm wholly unprepared for. And if I can't figure out what to do in that moment, I'm, I might fold down the Dungeon Master screen and go, hey guys, I'm, I realize I'm, I was not prepared for this and I wanna, here, here's my experience that I'm having right now with all of you at the table, with me being a, a fellow player with you and playing this game uh, and trying to figure out what's the next step in, in navigating this. Um, very often we'll have players who are, um, especially our younger players who are having trouble paying attention or having trouble engaging uh, in the game. They get distracted or, or they um, will get up from their seats and sort of wander around the room. Uh, and when that happens too much, sometimes I'll, I'll take the game master screen and I'll fold it down, sort of the, the indication that I'm no longer the game master. And I'll turn to the players and be like, I'm noticing we're all really distracted today. Is there something, I wonder if we, we, can, we can do something to help us get back engaged with the game. Um, and now I'm a part of the process. I'm, I'm being genuine to, to my, maybe my frustration that we're having trouble staying on track, but uh, I'm not putting it on the players as a responsibility of them. I'm putting it on us wholly as a group um, where I'm a part of that. So what about the level of transparency between you and the kids? The ki the, so parents say, yes, take my child and, and put them through this process so that we can so we can develop some of these uh, very important social skills that they need. Do the children that you work with, do they know that that's the 
goal that you're setting when you're when you're talking about this is the, is the debrief at the top of it that yeah we're doing this but we're also working on therapeutic aspects or how does that conversation go i think it totally depends on the player uh, some players have been in therapy their whole lives and when we start talking therapeutic language they get uh you know upset. They don't want to participate. Um, so our part of our goal is to really focus on the outcomes that we want. And if them being able to uh, to talk about it is our goal, then we need to really work on developing a relationship first. So a lot of, a lot of what we do is coaching, uh, side coaching, collaborative coaching. And so we have to build the relationship to get to that point oftentimes. Some players come in and they say, I'm here because I have trouble making friends. I want an opportunity to work on some skills. Um, that is very specific to uh, each player and the conversations that the parents have had with them. So we uh, have to be able to once again, sort of improvise um, per group based on what the individual participants know, um, what their uh, investment is, the contract is in our in our goals. Um, regardless, uh, every player knows that um, neurodiversity and uh, inclusion is a big part of our model. So a lot of players will very much diagnose um, or, or disclose their own diagnoses if they have them uh, to the group um, and f talk about what they're working on. So it's um, it's sort of a, a mix of how much we focus on the therapeutic conversation from the get-go, depending on the group. But whether or not they're focused on uh, the therapeutic conversation, the check-in question and the check-out questions at the start and end of every day really help give a reflective piece to mm -hmm. what we're doing and give an opportunity to, to reflect on who you are and who your character is and how you're sharing those things with the group or how those things are connected to each other. Okay. So a lot of these questions I've been asking are kind of related to if I'm a therapist and I'm looking at this possibility or if I'm, if I'm in any particular field and I'm looking at a possibility of trying to run therapeutic role-playing games, What's what's the experience like? And so that doesn't really, you know, it gets into my individual questions, but it doesn't really get into the process of things. And I know you guys went through some of this with our previous podcast where you talked, you gave stories that were really incredible stories to kind of illustrate what what's happening at the table. Because here we're talking about a role-playing game that is made, it's geared towards children with deficits in social skills. And... It seems like the, the best way to sort of elicit some of that for the listener, and I imagine four years down the line here, four, three, <laughs> three years down the line here, you've probably got a lot more stories that can you can sort of encapsulate what it is that Critical Core does at this point. Um, and of course, there's lots of information on the web, but it seems like a more personal take would be helpful. Sure. Um, do you have any stories you want to tell, Adam? It's you know it's been such a long time since our last our last podcast. I was trying to think of what stories we had, um, but uh, just just to clarify, while you know Adam and I are percolating and thinking of stories, there, there's um, a, a, an idea about social skills deficits and social skills instruction that I think is important to clarify. Um, just to, to wax theoretical for just another moment, um, as the stories float to the surface, um, <laughs> the uh, the idea here uh, about build, helping youth build social skills that I think is sometimes a, a a misunderstanding for a lot of a lot of parents and a lot of teachers and even sometimes therapists who want to help kids build social skills is that the focus sometimes is on um, teaching social skills and helping them build a repertoire of discrete skills and hopefully the context in which to use them. Uh, but a lot of the players come to us having been in social skills training programs and they don't really want to use social skills because they haven't felt the intrinsic benefit of using those skills. So one of the things that's so nice about a program like ours and like what Critical Core aims to do is really focus not just on knowledge deficits uh, in terms of social skills, but also performance deficits and fluency deficits. So when you have a, a young person who knows to be knows the skills to be social, how to interject themselves into a conversation, um, how to maybe ask a follow-up question, but they don't use any of those social skills, then the tactic on how to how to reinforce and build that that young person's social capabilities is very different. So 
for someone who uh, knows skills but doesn't want to use them, then we can use the game to sort of prompt and shape those behaviors so that they can become reinforced and socially rewarding. And when somebody is really wants to be social and isn't particularly good at it, the reinforcing nature of the game really allows us to uh, to, to coach those behaviors also. So somebody who wants to, you know, interact with uh, with an NPC, um, they're prompted to use social skills. And so now we have the opportunity to, to assess in the moment for what skills they have and then also, uh, you know, reinforce them and shape them. So uh, I, as an example, um, we had a, a storyline that involved um, – it involved tracking down the pieces of a statue, um, the armor for this sentinel who was going to, to if you put all the pieces of the armor together, you'd you know, reincarnate this the sentinel that would defeat the, defeat the Lich King. So I had the group going on a bunch of different fetch quests, and one of them was to go find the chest piece of this ancient suit of armor. And um, they tracked down the previous owner of it and went to his house. And when they got there, they found out that the owner of the chest piece had recently died, and they showed up for his funeral. Wow. So um, they got there, they knocked on the door and, you know, I, I, they opened the door and I described the person who answers the door. You see a group of people all standing around. Most of them are wearing black. Um, there is sort of a plate, of, a table of food laid out. Um, everyone's sort of somber. You see some, you know, some people with tears in their eyes. The, the woman who answers the door um, uh, is sort of a, a young woman also dressed in black. There is a, an older woman behind her with a veil over her face. Everyone looks very sad. Um, and they said... Where's the chest piece? Chest piece. I'm, I'm looking for the chest piece. We need the chest piece. Who has seen the chest piece? I'm looking for this guy. Um, and right there was um, an opportunity, right? So there's a little bit of like, what do you think the context is? Um, so, you know, teaching context is really important for social skills, knowing the context of when to be direct, when to be, you know, s to circumnavigate that conversation, when to give a compliment as a warm up before you ask something. So then the, all of a sudden there's an opportunity to teach skills on context. And then, you know, I had to uh, give them a little bit of coaching around, uh, you know, fitting in, mingling a little bit. Who do you who do you find in the group to talk to uh, those kinds of things? So over over the course of this uh, session, they, you know, they mingled by the by the food tray. They complimented the canapé, um, the small pastries, um, you know, and then eventually we, we sort of figured out the small talk of who to talk to and so on. And, and that was. Um, one of those moments that was, you know, sort of loosely planned, but that was, that was a social skills um, coaching and encouragement in there that wasn't, it was uh, sort of unique in that, in that capacity. So just real quick, uh, in that situation, did you just like call a halt to the game and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe you don't want to approach it this way? Or how did you, how did you break that down for that person? Because obviously they're they're speaking in a way that's not appropriate to the situation. Right. And one of the beautiful things about a game like Dungeons and Dragons or Critical Core is that you can sort of pause and say, "Is that what you really wanted to say?" Um, and then re and then go back in. So it's it's the the beautiful thing about a game like this is that it's both happening now and can be rewound a little bit and can be fast forwarded a little bit. We can try again. Um, it really depends. So there are times when I want the players to sort of feel the consequences of their actions. Of course, um, there are also times where I want to give them just a brief moment of like, oh, I, I I think you didn't think about that as much as you could have. Um, here's a different way to think about that. Now that you know that, now that you can consider this, would you do things differently? And that is a really valuable opportunity for them to practice by, by trying again. And the game is really good at doing that in social social situations. Um, also, sometimes in just in in trying new things with dice rolls, you know, you have an opportunity to try again and again. And in this case, what I said was, let me let me tell you a little bit more about the context, just in case you didn't get it. So I'm also <laughs> yeah. I'm also sort of attributing to them that maybe they missed this, but here is something yeah. you might want to know. Um, and then the the instruction that I'm giving there is less uh, teachery and more, I'm, I'm looking out for you and here's something you may want to know based on your desires and your, your interests in getting past this encounter in the game. And we'll go back and forth between the choice, um, depending on the, the player, depending on the group, uh, depending on the situation, and especially the skills that they're working to build. 
we'll go back and forth between the choice of um, are we going to pause the game, let them rewind, maybe instruct them better on how to do this, or are we going to let them go forward with the consequences and then have to learn from the consequences of the, the character's actions? Um, in another group, uh, I had a player that was a group that was going through a dungeon, and it was a group that was just getting to know each other. Um, and they came into a dungeon room uh, where we have a puzzle that we'd used before called the Biagafma puzzle. And the way that it works is that you walk into the room, and across the room, across the other corner of the room, there's a, a metal door. And in the two corners of the room, to your right and left, in one corner there is a giant troll of legend who is imprisoned there. And in the other corner, there are three switches. And this is meant to be a puzzle where it's a sort of logic puzzle um, with a social interaction piece. So you talk to the troll of legend, you have to decide, maybe he knows which switches open the door across the way and which switches free him, and you have to decide whether or not you can trust him, and it's it's sort of a, a question and logic puzzle. But one of my players at the time had made a character that he described as um, impulsive and... Um, and having a difficulty with impulse control. And it was mm. an appropriate character for him to play because those were all the same challenges that that player also had. <laughs> and so the first thing that happened, everybody came into the room. I described the situation. Um, the rest of the group got out, started getting out pieces of paper, recognizing this was a puzzle and, and starting to take notes. And then that player says, I run across the room and I pull all three switches at once. <laughs> And in that moment, all the other players are slack-jawed watch, watching this happen. Um, and in that moment, I, I could have paused, like in the previous example, and said, let's have a conversation about this. But instead, what I just decided to do is this is what this player is working on. Um, they are working on, on um, impulse control and understanding uh, consequences and understanding how those consequences affect their teammates. And so instead, I let them do it. They pull all three levers, the door opens across the way, and the troll is released from his prison, runs over, and picks up the impulsive player, ready to eat, eat him, swallow him. <laughs> and I turned to the rest of the players and I said, you guys have to make a choice. You are an adventuring team. You are here. You're heroes. But you can leave through that door and leave your teammate <laughs> to, be, to be consumed by this massive troll of legend <laughs> and release this, this horrifying troll upon the world, or you can try to save him. And they, they sort of huddled together, and they said, okay, we're going to try to save our teammate. And then they um, lured the troll back into his cage by pretending to be um, tasty little children, which obviously the troll would enjoy eating more, um, <laughs> and, uh, and lured him back and then threw the, the switches again and re-imprisoned the troll in the cage. Um, and it was a, a huge moment. And then at the end of that game in our checkout process, um, the impulsive player said, I'm really glad that you guys stuck around and helped out my character because they're working on impulsivity and that's where they're really have a lot of challenge and they're going to need your help to get better at that. Um, and I'm seeing that now that, that you guys are going to be able to help, help my character get better at, at impulse control. And one of the other players even spoke up and said, I'm glad that you did that because we're all working on challenges here and I have trouble with impulse control and seeing you do that makes me feel better about the challenges that I have coming in um, and reminds us that we're all working on stuff. So I'm glad we could help support. And those moments really make a big difference in their lives. And that was, just to bring it back, that was the moment where Adam was totally improvising in the moment because <laughs> no one had ever done that before with that particular puzzle. Um, but afterwards, those kids also role-played the consequences of that player doing that in character. So he... Uh, the, the, the impulsive player who pulled the switches had to role play apologizing to the rest of the group the next session. All, all um, not, not directed by Adam, the game master, but by the desire for that skill to be practiced. And so the, the player is practicing role playing the apology, and the rest of the players are practicing accepting the apology, sometimes conditionally, sometimes, you know, I, I, I want to give you a second chance, but you got to improve. And all of the reciprocal benefits that are happening here is a lot of those players are, are in a way, because of the externalization, uh, for certainly forgiving the other player, but also forgiving themselves, giving themselves a lot of validation for their own experiences and seeing themselves in not only their character, but the other person's character. And then there's a lot of, of sort of group healing that can come from building that uh, building that perspective. So obviously we're not going to get the, the opposite where you give anecdotes of how things fall apart, but I can imagine a situation <laughs> where things do fall apart 
and uh, you know, like where the the group says, "Yeah, we'll we'll let him be eaten by the troll or whatever it might be," and and then you have to sort of manage that situation. What I'm also wondering is, are they able to maintain? You know, we've we've talked on on uh, Rolling for Change before about the magic circle, about the fact that what happens inside the game stays inside the game, and we don't carry it outside of the game. Did they are the kids able to maintain it within the game and then come outside of the game and still be able to function with one another, or is it a matter of the the game master just has to do their best to try to keep these things from becoming what they could just inevitably do, which is fall down flat? So sometimes things do fall down flat, and that's part of the te- teachable moments when we learn about that. There's also a lot of great learning can happen in terms of the consequences of uh, of actions when things fall flat. If characters do something in the game that breaks the game, then the game master can fold the screen down and say, huh, we're kind of at a standstill right now. Um, and teachable moment. Your character, we, we know <laughs> that this person is going to keep playing. This is part of our contract. So they're not going to stop playing. So how do we move the story forward with this player versus player conflict happening? Um, I had a group um, that the there was so much table conflict um, at the table. Uh, they, one person was interrupting a lot and the other players did not like it. And so, of course, that conflict at the table would sort of translate into the game. Uh, the players were, were arguing about about interrupting each other, so the characters would say like they they you know they would they would uh, interrupt each other and keep each other from being successful. They would steal each other's hits and and uh, not give each other inspiration and so on and so forth. And so it 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 was a process of looking at both inside the game and outside the game as the way to heal that relationship. And there are opportunities in the game to make them rely on each other that then bleeds into. The, the, the table conversations. And now that group, that was years ago, there that was actually the group that is now um, second family. Uh, just to, to show you that the, the transition between that, where they were like ready to go to blows about about this interruption that was happening so regularly. And now they they re- relate to each other as, as second family. And that group still has character versus character conflict sometimes. And it's been really, really interesting because I have two players in that group, the second family group, who their their characters literally got into a, a physical fight with magic uh, attacks at each other. And so I, as the game master, I, you know, I have a rule where you know you, your characters can't kill each other. Your characters really shouldn't even be attacking each other. But because our focus on the game is so much more about the narrative construction than it is about the, the, the game mechanics themselves, that I, I said, by the end of this story, your characters have to be resolved because that's what makes this story interesting is the journey your characters go on. So right now they're arguing about this very specific thing. I'm curious how those characters are going to find uh, find themselves on the same side of this of this issue by the end of the story. And so over the over the course of time as their characters will start to have conflict with each other, I will once again remind them that this story needs to come to a resolution. So I can even say, you know, in Harry Potter, um, there are times when the main characters don't get along and they argue and you wonder whether they're going to stay friends, but they come back together. And so let's see how we can get that to happen with our characters and show them how they can resolve that conflict to come back together. And that has been a really interesting shift in the way that I've conducted that group versus a lot of other groups where the story is the main thing. So I'll even use um, like the, the language of a, a film director, and I'll say the camera cuts over to you. What what is what is your character's what what expression of your character's face right now as the camera pans over after this conflict happens? How does how does your character look? Are they feeling sort of angry still, or are they feel kind of sort of regretful about the combat that just happened? Uh, and that has been a really interesting way to frame the the experience between these characters. Because it's not just like, I want to kill this player with a fireball because they're, I'm mad at them and then they'll make a new character and we'll keep fighting the Lich King. It's about the the, the narrative construction. I was that, that same group, I also had moments where I try to roll some dice and make them roll for perception. And I'll say, all right, you guys are in... You're, you're in this hotel room, uh, this inn room, and you hear some footsteps on the on the gravel outside the window. And they go, yeah, yeah, we're going to ignore it. We're having a role play moment right now. <laughs> we're, our characters are talking about their past history and their, their wartime trauma. So we're going to ignore those footsteps. And I was like, okay, all right. All right. The plot will stay on hold while you guys role play. So. 
Um, I, I'm just like Josue. I was listening to, like I said, I was listening to the other podcast, and he was talking about how how he's smiling for the whole <laughs> episode, and and I'm I'm there now because it just the stories you're telling are just so fantastic, and as a therapist, it just makes me so excited to see that games are being used in this way, and and they're you're you're giving me such wonderful success stories that just make it seem like okay, yeah, this is really doable. This is not something where it's just a pipe dream. This is something real that's going on. You're getting real data. You're seeing real change in these kids. You're you're getting to watch the drama unfold as they develop these skills and learn how to manage these. And as a therapist, of course, it just makes me beam because that's like what well, that's what we want. We want these mm-hmm. kids to kind of get the skills they need in order to address life in whatever way they can. Um, so, uh, hats off to you guys for doing such a great job of of bringing this into reality because I I. I know there are other people out there that do it, but I don't know that I've talked to anybody that does it with such an intentionality as you do and such an ability to manage the situation and still focus on skill building, still focus on the group. Um, it, it's just a fantastic uh, a fantastic feat that you guys have achieved. So thank, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so <laughs> much. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I bought Critical Core. Not with, I didn't even look at it because I had met you guys already. I had heard your interviews already, and I just knew that this was going to be something I should put my money down for because I wanted you guys to succeed in the process. Um, and, and hopefully lots of people looked at it. I mean, obviously, you guys you guys made your, your goal and you made stretch goals and mm-hmm. you did fantastic did. things with your, your Kickstarter. Yeah, it, it did. It did amazingly well. Or I'm, I'm still kind of blown away by the better than we could have imagined. We, we got our full funding in eight hours, um, which is pretty remarkable for a Kickstarter. Um, and we broke. I think it was over 500 percent of of our goal. So the the community has been really, really uh, positive in the response to Critical Core. I think there's lots of gamers out there who felt the positive impact the games had on their lives and so they want to to spread that out even farther and i mentioned earlier that that adam and i started game to grow in order to get farther out into the world with the kind of work that we're doing to let other people do it and that's really the the point of critical core is to get sort of like Microsoft's dream when they were, you know, building computers in garages <laughs> to get a computer on every desk. We want to see a, a game in every school and every library and every hospital. Uh, we think the world would be a better place if more people were playing more games together. Well, you have my vote. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, have you had other therapists chime in and talk to you and say, hey, I've been, I mean, obviously Critical Core is not out yet, but hey, I've been listening to you guys and I, I see what you guys are doing and I'm trying to do something similar. Are people giving you those kind of testimonies? It's it's actually been really interesting. When when we first started and, and probably back around the time that uh, we were recording with you last, we, you know, we go to panels, um, do panels and presentations at conferences. And when we first started doing panels, it was 2015, I think it was. And back then we were like, Brand new on the scene, and so was this field. Um, we People were sort of hearing about this for the first time in those big convention-type situations, but we always had people um, coming up to us afterwards and saying, oh, actually, I've been doing that in my in my little private practice somewhere, and I've, I've been doing this, or I know someone who's doing something very similar. And uh, I think it was actually one of the panels that Josue recorded and put on, on the podcast um, a while back was one of our presentations we did at PAX East. And it was about the past, present, and future of therapeutic role-playing games. And we predicted uh, way back then that the future of therapeutic role-playing games would involve those of us that are doing this, uh, leaving our silos and coming together and collaborating. And that's really been a really cool thing to see now is that um, our very first PAX Unplugged, uh, we talked to some of the people uh, involved with Read Pop and Penny Arcade, and they said there were so many mental health gaming podcast or uh, panels uh, submitted that they had trouble deciding which ones to choose. And that's a fantastic thing to see as as we've been sort of on the on the frontier of this field for the last eight years to see just how many people now are not only doing this, but talking about it very vocally and eager to share their ideas. Yeah, I remember we were all sitting down at a table together, and I was just in awe of the fact that here we all were. <laughs> we are all therapists, or we're all in the therapeutic field, and we're all doing this, in, as you said, in silos. You know, I had this idea. I don't know if you ever watched the, the show Captain Kangaroo. Sure. Did you ever oh, yeah. watch that? When I was homesick was, there, in grade school. There was one <laughs> Captain Kangaroo episode where uh, this guy comes from the middle of nowhere where he's invented the umbrella for the first time, and... <laughs> 
I think about that when I think about these ideas coming up and they're coming up without having, you know, it's like a zeitgeist of the time. It's not really that um, one group got together and created something that stretched outward. It's, it's uh, you know, forgive me for saying something so prophetic, but it's, it's uh, like an archetypal rising into our current reality kind of thing where it's like, it's just the right time for something like this to happen where mm-hmm. people start to use media, people start to use games as a means of connecting with other people because we've, we've seen the potential, we've seen the possibility now. Plus, we all grew up with role-playing games and with games, and we know the impact it had on us. Here we are moving into the future. We're like, well, hey, I can spread that to other people. I can make sure that other people know that they're not alone in their experience of this. Yeah. And so that's what that PAX Unplugged was all about for me. This is the fact that we're all operating, and here we are all together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you nailed it on the head. I think the the real um, amazing part about this that that Adam and I have have gotten a chance to see that all I guess all of us have gotten a chance to see is other people inventing the same thing uh, and rolling forward with it, and then uh, we get to all sort of discover each other. Um, and the thing that I have truly loved about, especially speaking at cons, is getting to meet more and more people who are saying, you know, I started a Dungeons and Dragons group at my school, and I'm getting to see all these kids have so much growth and so much opportunity because of that, and it's so powerful. And um, and in some cases, it's it's even inspired by us, which is even more of a of a um, wonderful touchstone for us to to have people come to us and say, Hey, I heard you speak at a con, you know, three or four years ago, uh, and I was inspired, and I made my own D&D group, and now we're, we're doing so well, and, and we've, got, you know, watched lots of people really benefit from it. Um, and that's even more meaningful. Absolutely. I'm actually uh, co-presenting a panel um, at the North American Drama Therapy Association conference in Philadelphia in November with someone who saw us at a PAX and then I encourage them to go to grad school um, at, and study drama therapy in order to pursue this field. And n- now we're co-presenting together, which is it's really interesting and, and fun to be involved in the field at the level that, that we are. Right. What an amazing thing. You're, you're basically like their, their father. <laughs> <laughs> and if they teach somebody, then you'll be a grandfather. That's right. <laughs> that, that's actually, um, you know, it's interesting to think about the stories we tell. Um, our biggest goal with the stories is always to be to try to be inspiring and and to give ideas for people who are are trying to do this kind of work and go oh that's a great idea I should use that in my game but also to inspire people and to help I I'm just just like with you Woody like I I want you to go forward and run those groups I don't want it to feel like such a daunting task there are a lot of challenges you'll have to overcome as a part of that process but more than anything what I want for you is for you to to run forward and and do that and impact the world in a positive way um, uh, using using games because the opportunity is there. And I think inspiration is a part of what's going to get you there. And, and you guys are that inspiration at times for me. It, it's just wonderful to, to see you doing that. And for the listeners, uh, just so you know it, I was talking to uh, to Adam and Adam last week about how how we bring this into the world, how we, you know, they're doing it out in Seattle. I'm over here on the East Coast. I don't see anything like that here in Atlanta and I know from playing role-playing games with my son that they have a really positive impact and, and this ability to create more opportunity to, to do social skills building because we had, uh, you know, this is nothing as, as monumental as what you guys have been talking about, but there was a situation in our role-playing game where um, my son kept wanting to separate the party, and he would put us in situations where he would be over fighting something while we're in the midst of a really big battle or he'd be over trying to loot something while we're in the midst of a really big battle and so ultimately what happened was we all died <laughs> so because we weren't able to yeah it was a teachable moment and so when we get back he's a little less likely to separate the party and he kind of sees the value in kind of maintaining maintaining some group cohesion which I thought was just fantastic and uh, and we can see it play out so I know, I know that games are have so much potential because obviously I have a podcast about it. <laughs> um, but uh, seeing what you guys do uh, makes me want to do more of that stuff with role playing games because I've up to now only kind of used actual tabletop 
board gaming in my sessions, and to a minimal degree because I'm using them in kind of an adjunct sort of way. Um, but what you guys do is put the role-playing game front and center, and mm-hmm. then the skills come off of it, which is that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You said your group is, you said age, was it 8 to 25? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, obviously not in the same table or group together uh, usually. Um, we'll do a mix, but really it's about sort of um, uh, maturity level and developmental level and where where the different players will mesh well with each other. So usually, you know, 8, 9, 10-year-olds are in a group together. Um, you know, 11, 12, 13 might be in a group together. Um, mm-hmm. As you start getting a little older, you can make the gap bigger without it being as much of a developmental issue. Like so. an 18-year-old and a 25-year-old in the same group. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, but we have now enough groups that we can we can have a pretty wide range and birth of of ages and and developmental levels and challenges um, and just kind of pick and choose and say well, we think you're going to be a better fit in this group because of because of age or because of uh, because of uh, personality or developmental level. So you guys, your your population is is mostly uh, kids who come in with a specific disability. They're either on the spectrum or they have ADHD. Um, I imagine there's a few other diagnoses that you see, but have you done anything that's more geared towards an audience of people that are maybe older, more mature? Obviously, 25 is where you're stopping, but I'm wondering if you've even sort of conceptualized the idea of doing this with adults who maybe don't have some of the same issues that these kids do, but are still looking for, number one, a healthy, safe, therapeutic role-playing environment, you know, a place that, it, that you can kind of really gain something out of it. And two, that, you know, I, I can see as a player from listening to you guys that I would want to be involved <laughs> in a game you run. So d- does it apply to adults? Can you stretch it out to a, a different audience besides the kids that you've identified? We absolutely could. So the the real reason why we serve mostly adolescents is because mostly adolescents' parents are the ones who are looking for the resources. Um, yeah. at, at a certain point, people don't have the same degree of willingness to go to groups, to go to therapy at all, really. So yeah. that, there's sort of a limitation there. There's just sort of a natural response to the to the climate and the culture. Um, there's no reason why a, a game like Critical Core couldn't be used with uh, any any population really we have some um, some irons in the fire so to speak um, to uh, run groups with veterans to help uh, focus on on a lot of the issues that some veteran population are dealing with uh, that won't be run specifically by Adam and I but it'll be a, a uh, an extension of the theoretical model that we've developed and the the facilitation tactics that we use with kids could just be adapted to uh, to help veterans deal with a, a whole host of uh, things that that don't necessarily apply to the same kids that we work with around around trauma and around addiction mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Um, I was um, one of our groups here in Seattle is um, run at the senior center. We just rent the room at the senior center because it's in a very convenient location. But uh, I talked to the people at the front desk and they were excited about having us come in and run a group for seniors. Um, so there really is no limit, I think, to, the, to the, the population that could benefit from this kind of work. Yeah. The real secrets are figuring out how to make it accessible to that population. And some of that is accessible financially. Um, yeah. And some of that is accessible by by time constraints and by scheduling, um, and those are sort of the the barriers for making it um, more appealing to a to an, an older audience um, or an older group of people. Uh, older meaning older than twenty five. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a side of this that's a dream job for you guys. I can't imagine like just looking at the idea of if I can make my living doing this. As a therapist, you know, anybody who's looking at what you do and trying to say, I'm going to emulate it, there's a side of that that's really exciting because you can kind of like put your own passion into play on a daily basis. But then I wonder what kind of impact it has had on you as as facilitators in terms of your own gameplay. Do you still get to play? Do you still want to play even? That's an even bigger question. Uh, they, they, there is like an old saying that is... Um, uh, if you want to keep doing um, what you do, the things you love, uh, but don't um, do them for work because you will stop loving them. Uh, yeah. And so there is a little bit of that. Um, I still love to play, um, and I'm I'm a role playing game player. 
um, from way, way back, and I've been a player in a lot of games. And uh, learning to be a game master was a big part of me growing up in my RPG experience. But the um, the place that I am now is that I really can't game master games for my friends on a regular basis anymore, sort of out of those resources. <laughs> but being a player in a game is something I can totally do. And actually, my, my wife is now running a personal game that we play uh, maybe once once a month or so, um, where Adam and I get, get to both be players in that game. And that's a unique experience. We really don't get to be uh, players in in our in games together very very much. Uh, so it's fun to be able to jump in and just be goofy and and speak in voices and and play just a character, a single character in a in a world. There, there was a time when uh, Adam and I were both running five groups per week, uh, which is a lot of of D yeah. groups to run for professional purposes. And then we also had to remember sometimes what it feels like to be a player. What, what, what is the sort of organic, just plain fun of the game? So it's been really nice to, uh, to do both. So I, I play in the game that Adam's wife runs. I play in Clinical Role, run by Megan Connell. Um, I play in the game that Adam runs for the Psychology in Seattle podcast. So there's some things that are sort of on the cusp of being um, personal and professional. But it's really important, I think, as somebody who game masters uh, as much as we do, to also get an experience of what it feels like to just remember how much fun it is to sit around a table, make jokes, and roll some dice. Yeah, and I can imagine uh, if you tried to go back and game master for for friends now, <laughs> you have these kind of built-in skills where you're like, wait a minute, you sure you want to do it that way? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, I definitely would pull out some teacher voice, probably like, hmm, uh-huh. you can hear the sound of my voice, point to the clock. <laughs> Um, actually, Anthony Bourdain used to talk about how um, uh, he, he traveled around the world. He went to all these like incredibly famous restaurants, and people asked him where he liked to eat the most, and he said, when I get invited over to a friend's house for dinner, that's where I like to eat the most. Um, and the idea was like he, he goes to all these amazing places, famous chefs, the most famous chefs in the world, purposefully make up dishes just to serve him. But the times where he really loves it the most are, you know, his friend invites him over for dinner and he makes spaghetti. Um, and that experience, I think, is very true for this, too. Um, we, as much as possible, we want to try to sort of leave the, the facilitator and the therapist at, at home. And when I'm going to sit down with a group of my friends, um, I... I they don't have to be a master facilitator. They don't have to be a master game master. They just have to come in with positivity and enthusiasm and be my friend. And that's that's what I really want from them in that gaming experience. And that gaming experience is exactly the thing that that I'm gonna sort of request from from that. Excellent. Uh, well, guys, our our time is running out. I, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me and spending this time with our audience. I think. Uh, hopefully everybody's going to get as excited about it as I can. Of course, Critical Core is now closed on Kickstarter. Uh, can you talk about Can Can people still get involved with Critical Core before it comes out? There is still the pre-order store. So if you go to our uh, criticalcore.org, you will see a link to the Kickstarter. The, the button that used to say back this Kickstarter now says pre-order now. And you can still go to our backer kit um, pre-order store and still get a copy of either the digital kit or the um, or the, the physical box kit. So uh, uh, both of those are still available. You can also one of the, the things that was so cool about our Kickstarter uh, is that people were were backing the Kickstarter not to get a kit for themselves, but to donate a kit to a hospital or a school. That's so beautiful. they can still do that through the the backer kit uh, pre-order store as well. And where is that backer kit and pre-order store? I guess they'll get to it through Kickstarter, but is there another address you want to give? They can go to criticalcore.org to get the link to it. It's the easiest place for people who are listening to remember, criticalcore.org. That's pretty simple, criticalcore.org. Any other way people can get in touch with you if they want to talk about this, if they want to host their own podcast where they talk to you about Game to Grow? Um, anything like that, how do they reach you guys? Sure, they can find us at, at gametogrow.org. There's a whole lot of other interviews and podcasts and panels we've been on on our website. Uh, there's also a contact form for people to, to ask questions if they want to join a group or start a group or anything like that. We're more than happy to talk to them about that. Uh, they can find us on Facebook and uh, Twitter, both at game to grow That's G-A-M-E-T-O-G-R-O-W. <laughs> Not G-N-G. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, again, guys, thank you so much. I, I'm I'm excited to uh, let the listeners hear this interview, and I'll look forward to you know what we'll come back and maybe another year or two and and see where things are at and maybe uh, take another step down the road to tell your story. Absolutely. By and then we'll be able to visit the Game to Grow space station. That's <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, let's let's not let it uh, be so long this next time. This was fun. Thanks for having us back. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. And for the rest of you, keep on rolling for change. You have been listening to Rolling for Change, a proud member of the Geek Therapy Network. Our weapons are fear, surprise, and a fanatical devotion to media. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to interact with us, send email to gamers at rollingforchange.com. Join us on Geek Therapy Discord at geektherapy.com forward slash discord or respond to episodes individually at forum.geektherapy.com. Geek Therapy celebrating its 8th birthday and it's now old enough for that first sleepover. To learn more about Game to Grow and to become a supporter of Critical Core, check out gametogrow.org and criticalcore.org. Our theme music was provided by Rocket Scientists. I started really paying attention to this band when I heard the Revolution Road double album. Head over to Bandcamp where you can hear more about Rocket Scientists and buy your very own copy of Revolution Road. You will not be disappointed. Until next time, keep on playing games and keep on rolling for change.